0: Hello guys. My name is Christopher Wonheim and you're listening to Bin, the podcast where we talk to some of the smartest and best performing people we can find in business, sports, politics and science. Today's episode is with the managing partner and founder of Nova Founders Capital, Mats Forhalt. As of today, Mats has started over 30 companies globally in markets as Hong Kong, Portugal, Philippines, Germany, Malaysia, Indonesia, Mexico, Singapore, Taiwan, UK, thailand and denmark before founding nova mats worked as a global partner and managing director at rocket internet and managing director at groupon in asia mats holds an mba from mit and a bachelor's in business from copenhagen business school that he finished in only one year and nine months Mats has also been named one of europe's leading internet entrepreneurs and is an expert advisor on web entrepreneurship to the eu commission I went to London to sit down with Matt and to talk about his key lessons so far and what others can learn from his journey. The conversation starts off with us discussing how everyone can expand their comfort zones and need to learn the difference between risk and uncertainty before diving straight into world-class execution and company building. Hope you enjoyed this episode and let us know if you have any feedback at all. The one thing I want to start with is that many many years ago, I read this article It was a Danish entrepreneur talking about comfort zones. Okay. It was you explaining the concept of green zone, yellow zones, and red zones. Sure. Can you explain that concept? Because I think it's very valuable for people to understand.
1: So the first thing is your comfort zone today, which I would call the green zone. Consider that like put a circle in a piece of paper and then put that one green. That's your green zone. That is what you feel comfortable with today. Okay. So that is ordering the pizza that you always order, et cetera. Put a new circle around the green zone. That's your yellow zone. Now, that is marginal extensions to what you feel comfortable with. That's a natural evolution that you will go through. You may pick a new route to work. You may, next time you order your pizza, not pick the Hawaii pizza or whatever, right? And then you have put a new circle around the yellow zone, around the green in return, um, and you'll have the red zone. The red zone is the stuff that you feel highly uncomfortable with. Now, the fundamental thing is, and the red zone, by the way, is the incompa- encompassing all of the world. So it's every option that you have in the world, everything you do. Now, as I mentioned before, the only reason, the only way that you can expand your comfort zone is by doing things that are outside your comfort zone. And so, in reality, what your job is, is to expand the green zone as much as possible. But to expand it, you have to do stuff in the red zone. You can do it in the yellow, but you'll get there very slowly. If you want, like me, to get there very fast, you have to do stuff in the red zone. The problem with doing things in the red zone, it feels uncomfortable. It's a bit like going to the gym. You will gain muscle if you use your muscles, but you'll gain a lot more if you really, you know, use a lot of weight, right? And yeah. go beyond, you know, what you can normally do. So it's a bit the same in life. I think is we have to find that now. The issue I think in particular that we have today is it's too easy to quit. It's True. Too easy to quit. I like what Arnold Schwarzenegger says: is you should never have a plan B. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think there's a truth to that. I find, unfortunately, in particular for younger people nowadays that they always have one leg in I'm going to quit zone, right? And so every time they're faced with that, every time they're faced with an obstacle, they're considering, should I quit or should I go through this? And the problem with that is on bad days, you quit, right? You're tired, you quit. You know, it's a bit the same. If every time, if you have a girlfriend or boyfriend, if every time you have an argument or discussion, your natural inclination is to say, should I stay in this or should I go? You're more likely to at some point in time go rather than if your commitment is to say, I am going to stay. And of course, you can never commit for that forever, but I am going to stay. And then I'm going to find my way through this problem. Also, I find that many people mistakenly think um, that gut feeling and being nervous is the same thing. Mm. So some people may say, well, I have this gut feeling and I shouldn't be feeling this in my stomach. No, you're just nervous because you're getting outside your comfort zone. So for me, you know, I've spoken on stages hundreds of times and I feel nervous every single time. Like without exception, I feel nervous before. Does that mean my gut is telling me I shouldn't do it? No, it just tells me that I'm nervous. And by the way, I like being nervous. I like, I don't like being nervous, but I like being nervous. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I, know. I like it because it means that I'm going to try my very, very best. Yeah. Okay? And I think we have to be very careful there that we don't mistaken com- comfort, so we don't mistaken being nervous for having a gut feeling that we shouldn't do
0: it. I totally agree. And I also think it's a good parallel to another concept you, I sort of learned from you, is that there's a big difference between risk and being uncertain. Correct. Can, do you want to explain that? Because yes. that's also
1: like... No, I, th- I well, ca- well caught. So I think there's a huge difference between risk and uncertainty. And so risk for me is, I you have 100 kroner, 100 euros, and I tell you, look, let's make a bet You can either win 200 or you can lose the 100 or you can lose 50 of those 100. That's risk. That means you can end up with less. Uncertainty for me, which can come around risk, but uncertainty for me in its purest form is you have 100, you can either win 200 or you can keep your 100. That's like uncertainty. That means you're in no way worse off. So when I talk in particular in the countries that we come from, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, even UK, Germany, places where we have very, very, very good safety nets. And where you are very likely to land on your feet and everything will be fine. I'm surprised by how many people find it risky, for example, to go and found a business. Yeah. Find it risky to pursue their dreams. Because the reality is there is no risk. I think very often there's just uncertainty. So the most typical example I use is, you know, I, I, five years ago I tried to recruit somebody out of a uh, one of the top consulting firms to join a company that I had. And I was building. And I wanted him to join as a CEO. And I told him very simply, look. You can, uh, If you join this firm, there is a chance it won't work out. But I promise you, no matter what, you will not be worse off. Meaning you can go back to that consulting firm. You can probably get tenure for the time that you've done other things. You'll most likely get offered much better jobs, much better paying jobs if this doesn't work out. And if it works out because of the equity and everything else, it's a no-brainer. But a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people are mistaken. And we have an incredible amount of, you know, we have 42 biases that influences how we think. And so just for everybody who's listening or watching... What a bias means, it's almost like glasses that you have on that are a little bit like dirty, right? It means you don't see really what's going on. So an an example of a bias is we have an incredible amount of uncertainty bias, which means that we want to avoid uncertainty for all purposes. Sometimes we'll, and very often, we'll rather be worse off than being uncertain. Exactly. Right? We'll rather get certainty. That's why some people are pushing other people away. Because they have a difficulty with the uncertainty if the other person likes them, and therefore they'll get certainty by actually being overly aggressive or
0: communicating the wrong way, or whatever. Because at least that way they know the person doesn't like them. Exactly. Can we can we go back a few years? Uh, did young Matts before going to CBS? What was your mindset like? Was it always being an entrepreneur that was in your head growing up? Or
1: I think first of all, people today are much more aware than people were. 15 years ago yeah. right so because of the internet, because of maturity because of everything so i think your generation and you know we have 10 years apart are just much much smarter than mine was and i think in many ways mine is probably than 10 years before that not because of the dna being different but just exposure um that means that like people today i experienced people in high school who knows what mckinsey is i a yeah. consulting for i like had no idea until i was finishing my bachelor's and even then i didn't fully understand um I always jumped down on the street corner and sold stuff. I always loved business. I always wanted to discuss it. I was I was reminded the other day that I was working in an ice cream store when I was 13 years old. And I was not as interested to service the customers as I was to ask the owners every question about their financials. Okay. Including the fact that when you make a soft ice um, and you do that on a cone, you don't actually put the soft ice into the cone, but you actually put it on the edge of the cone. And by making a circle, you know, sort of triangle cone going upwards of the soft ice itself, you're avoiding putting soft ice inside the cone and actually saving about 100 saving 50% on your cost of goods sold. But when the person eats it, it gets pushed into the cone. So it looks like you're actually doing it. This is a very important part of the ice cream business. And that fascinated me a lot. <laughs> but like I drove these people nuts, like yeah. by asking questions all the time. But I don't think it's a requirement. I just think it was me. I just love this. Yeah, yeah. This is what I want to do. And like people always saying... You know, shouldn't you take time off? The only thing I would be doing if I take time off is I would do more of the same. Yeah. So.
0: And you also learned the standardization part of McDonald's, right? I think, oh, you, yeah. I think you quoted that being the hardest job you ever had probably working at hardest. McDonald's.
1: Yeah, there were, A, I'm really bad at manual labor, so <laughs> that's probably part of it, which I think my, my, my family can testify to. Um, but but the second thing is McDonald's, You know, they're, they know how to get the most out of their people because yeah. they know that one of their biggest costs are people, real estate, people, food. And so it was a place where I always say that if you're putting something down with one hand, you had to pick something else up with the other hand, right? That's right. how efficient it was. And they know how to measure and you know, they know that if the restaurant isn't busy, they'll send home their people and stuff. So I learned a tremendous amount there and it's fascinating how you can have an organization that are as global as McDonald's are and yet they'll deliver the same quality of product everywhere in the world. So I'll give you a fascinating uh, thing that I realized the other day. I was flying on an airplane. So I was flying London to, I think it was Hong Kong. And on the way there, I was super warm, you know, I didn't need my blanket. I could sit there in my T-shirt, all those things flying overnight there. On the way back flying overnight, it was super cold. I had to have my jacket on. I asked for an extra blanket, everything. So I went on the trip back because I thought it was way too cold. And I asked them, I said, look, what, what's the standard temperature for the airline? And they don't have one. So that means every single person who's working that day decides on how warm or cold it should be. Like, what a what a crap branding experience. Imagine every person who goes into McDonald's decides how the McDonald's burger is made, yeah. right? You know, it's the same churning up and down volume. Like, how lo- lo- it's either too low in an airplane, you can't hear what people are saying, or it's very high. I like what somebody said the other day. He said, you know, a Julian Tresher said to me, it was very funny, he said, they spent like a billion dollars on an airplane, and then they buy like the worst equipment for the audio, right? Like, you can <laughs> never understand and hear what the person is saying. So what I loved about it was... By getting standardization, it's not about stopping at standardization, it's about starting to innovate from standardization. Yeah. So, but by having a standardized approach and then having segments of your uh, execution that then innovates and tries off different things, fine to try, but let's agree on how we get to 95%. And then let's go from 95 to 100% by a bunch of trials and innovations around that. Yeah. So it's good that every airline, tr- like every plane tries different things, but let's just agree on what's best practices first. Exactly. And I think it's about figuring that out as a business across the board, not just for your temperature, how you answer your phone call, how you do your marketing, how you fly your airplanes, whatever it is. Exactly. That's what I mean by McDonaldizing things. So are you still the fastest one who ever finished CBS? Many that have done it the same. There's nobody who's done it faster from what i I okay. understand, but like Christopher who's a colleague of mine here has done it in the same
0: speed and I know there's
1: quite a few that's done it since.
0: But tell the idea, the, the, why did you do it? Was it just because you were bored? Just, you just want to try to make it faster than everyone else? Yeah, so I, else? I
1: did my, for those who don't know, so I did my bachelor's in a year and nine months and, you know, for at that point in time, this is now, uh, I finished in 2005, so it's now uh, almost 15 <laughs> years ago. my God. Uh, should, I don't know what happened to those 15 <laughs> years. Who stole them? Uh, you know, um, so in those, you know, Nobody had done it before at that point in time. And it wasn't, like, it sounded all planned when I put it like that. It wasn't really planned. It was um, after the first year in the summer, I was going to stay back and work anyway. So I wasn't going to go traveling. I wasn't going to do, go, go, do any of that stuff. So <clears throat> instead of instead of just working, I said, okay, let me sign up for some summer school classes. But let me make sure that the classes I sign up for, I then don't have to take in the fall. So I got them transferred all the classes, all the points that I got during the summer for this subject. I just had to do a little bit for finance, I think. I still had some other classes that to do, but I said, okay, since I now have quite an empty semester, let me sign up for third year classes on my second year, on, on my uh, third semester. Let me sign up for fifth semester classes, and um, and so I did that. And then I realized, okay, there was one class left in the fifth semester. Let me sign up for that, and then I'll take I can take the fifth semester off. As I finished that, I was now on the fourth semester, effectively my second end of my second uh, my, my second term, my second year. And I said, okay, well, why should I now go to school for another year just to do it? Let me, because I just had to write my bachelor's and take electives. Let me do that at the same time. So it happened quite coincidentally, to be honest, more than it was planned. Um, But, and this is the most important thing, is in Denmark, and because of the way the Danish society works, is nobody should think they're better than others. So what I received from people was not love, but hate likewise in norway by the way i think the same in norway (laughs) No nordic phenomenon oh shit i'm sorry to hear that i hope you didn't influence you but so what i got was not love i got hate right so i got people who literally said who do you think you are like why would you do that all those kind of things and so i think the biggest lesson that i walked away with from that was not so much finishing my and saving a year of my bachelor's um but really starting to be able to try to do things differently than what people thought were okay and i have the same thing today like there are people who like me, there are people who love me, there are people who love what I do. Yeah. There are also people who hate me, who have never met me and have just made judgment because they say, well, who does he think he is trying to build so many companies at the same time? Who does he think he is trying to work so hard? And yeah. so I've just, I've just learned, and I love the saying that says, if you ever find yourself on the side of majority, it's time to stop and reflect. Exactly. And I think that we have a tendency where I come from to say, if you ever find yourself not on the side of majority, it's time to start reflecting. But I love that. So I'm really, I think you have to be an independent thinker as Ray Dalio, the yeah, yeah. In founder of Bridgewater, the biggest hedge fund in the world would say. I think that's so true. You got to be an independent thinker. Yeah, And I think we have a tendency in the society I come from to not be an independent thinker, yeah. but actually being a very linear thinker and being a linear thinker in the same linear form as everybody else.
0: Yeah, but you can just see the career track to every business student. It's usually the same firms all 100%. over Ringen. But But my like... And
1: yeah. those are, by the way, super... There, those career tracks are defined in the rearview mirror. Yeah. So what I think most people do when they decide their career is they look at what did other people do. Yeah, exactly. Right? So they look in the rearview mirror and look behind them and say, oh, what did yeah. Mass do 15 years ago? Or what did this person do 15 years ago? And so I think it's important to turn around and say, what is going to work you know, 10 years from now? Exactly.
0: I, I think the most important decision I made was going to study at UC Berkeley for yeah. a semester because suddenly you feel like, okay, it's allowed to... Think big, it's allowed to have crazy dreams. And I'm just guessing when you went to MIT, it's sort of like the same feeling that maybe you feel like you're better suited in the, those types of environments. Well, I was nobody at MIT. No, like, but still it was like- a, I thought yeah. I
1: didn't deserve to be there all the time. Super okay. insecure of achieve, But Like I thought when I'd gotten into it, so I was, um, I think 21, I was accepted 21 when I started at the MBA at MIT, in Sloan School of Management. And because everybody else was like 28, 29, okay. and had a couple of years of experience at Goldman, McKinsey, whatever. And so I thought for the first half year that because my name is so common in Denmark, that they would made a mistake. And they were going to come and tap me on the shoulder and said, sorry, mass, different mass. We were thinking about when we met with you. Sorry, have a nice flight home. I was super nervous. I Really? Like, I tried to. Yeah, 100%. I really thought they had made a mistake. So, but I, I try to keep quiet so they wouldn't they wouldn't find their mistake. But how
0: did the classes go? Did you? I was satisfied with the grades. Yeah, well, yeah.
1: first of all, grades don't matter. Yeah. And Second, yes, like you know, A, you know, B, whatever, and everything. So, like 4.5 out of five or something. it was fine. It was like exactly. Um, but it really didn't matter. But more importantly, I T-date, I, I think more classes than anyone else. Oh, yeah, which meant I got a huge amount of my tuition paid for by the school. But I, like, I was the only non-PhD person, I think, to TA finance, as far as I'm
0: called. It's so funny. I was visiting Boston this summer, and yeah. I snuck into a summer class at uh, MIT. Oh, cool. and it was only me and a bunch of Chinese people. Yeah. So, so everyone yeah. else was like having a vacation. Yeah. All the Chinese were there like, yeah. doing algorithms. Can we talk a bit about when you start working, you decided to go to McKinsey. Sure. Um, I think you said it's an excru- extremely valuable school. You learn sure. all the, the things you need to know in finance. Yes. Is that correct? It was a yeah. very good experience going to McKinsey.
1: It was it was a super experience. I though always say to people, if you can get into McKinsey, you don't need to go. If you can't, you should go. <laughs> okay, right? It's the same thing I say about university. By the way, if you don't, if you want to do a bachelor's, you don't have to. If you don't want to, you should. Um, so I think it was a really good school for me because I'm I'm because I'm not like most of the other people in that sense. I was not as structured. I'm much more future oriented. Yeah. I'm, I'm a decent consultant, but I'm not amazing. I would be make much better partner than I would make consultant, right? Exactly. Um, which is, by the way, a huge problem that they have in these organizations, which is McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, is that what makes you a good analyst and what makes you a good associate is a completely different skill set than what makes you a good partner. Now, who makes a great partner are the people who can usually do both analyst and consulting very well. And then they know how to do the partnership stuff. Or they have survived as an analyst and, and yeah, consultant, and then. and then they're very good as a partner. Because And you and you always find it, like people who leave and contact us as an executive director in Goldman, I always know their personality because it's always the people. And there's nothing against it, but the people who are not as good at sales or don't like sales as much as other people do, which is when about it changes in Goldman Sachs, for example, what you have to do. But for me... McKinsey was a platform that a was the first, and I'd had other workplaces, but was the first that required me to be able to speak to very senior people. And in in professional services in particular, in McKinsey and BCG and Bain and the alike, you have to be very professional towards your clients. And I don't think I ever will become professional enough for what they require. Yeah, but I do think that um, it is a great platform for you to get to be presentable and be able to have those conversations and learn how those things super structured.
0: Yeah. And I guess that was like the important platform before rocket internet came along. Um, How was that meeting about when you got the offer to go to Asia and fuel Groupon? It was
1: very good. I was, so I, it was very, life
0: is super random. So it's not linear, right? It goes up and down. Yeah. And and
1: like, and I, while life is super random in a way, it's also a reflection of the amount of chances and things you do. Right. So it was very funny. So I was sitting on LinkedIn and, Back then, LinkedIn was not as widely used as today, but I was adding people who had worked in similar organizations as me. So like Facebook is a fairly personal network, at least was, it's getting less so. Yeah. LinkedIn has always been a network where you just want to connect. Like you just want to be connect as many because A, the algorithm pushes you more. B, it's more likely that somebody's going to contact you about a role. So I, I had connected with somebody who had worked for a similar a business that I had worked for, a company called Modern Times Group. And at one point in time, I just see it pops up on my screen and says, he's changed jobs. And I just write, congratulations. And he says, hey, we should talk one day. And so, I, you know, we have a conversation. He turned out to, he's moved to be a Headhunter. And um, we have this conversation. And he says, uh, look, I have this client of mine. Do you want to talk to them? Which is called Cinevik, uh, um, which is a big Swedish investment firm. And um, I, I spoke to Henrik Pearson, who's a good friend and, you know, had been a great advisor and mentor through, to me uh, throughout my career. And he said, look, I have a couple of options. And one of those options would then talking to and meeting Oliver Samwer, but who had founded Rocket Internet. But mm. the funny thing was, had I not been on LinkedIn in that day, at that very moment, had the algorithm not pushed that update <laughs> to me, I don't know what I would be doing today. That's crazy. And then I called, you know, I just, you know, and in became investor in Rocket Internet. And they, you know, I spoke to Oliver Samwer. He said his phone call started with, Master, you now got 10 minutes to tell me about who you are, and then I'll give you an offer you cannot refuse. Something in the words of, uh, of the godfather. And so I spoke to him. He offered me, I think, 40% less salary than I was getting, and I was going to work three times as much, and I thought that was a no-brainer, so I took it. So
0: <laughs> here I am. So when you go to Asia, I think you managed around 3,000 people in the Something end there. like that, yeah. How do you attack yeah, I that problem? Yeah. <laughs> look, look, it's very simple. I think people always think
1: it's harder to manage 3,000 people than it is to manage two it's the other way around it's much easier to manage many than it is to manage few um first of all you get to hire people who are very good at their job it's much easier to find it's much easier to find a great cfo when you like let me give you an example my dad runs a one-person business that means he's the digital marketer he's the accountant he's the salesperson he's the presenter he's everything right he's a product developer whereas when you're running a big business, you can actually hire experts at everything that you need. So it was a much easier way to do it. What is very complicated is having the belief, well, first of all, getting it, which was working day and night, only thinking about the business. I never thought about me. It was always about how do I do well for the business, which I always believe will ultimately do best for yourself. It was about adding massive value. It was about daring to to be wrong. So I, I would sit in meetings with 20 people, 15 to 10 people, who are much smarter than I am, who are much more experienced, and I would dare to ask the questions. When everybody else were nodding and agreeing, I would dare say like, hey, I don't understand what's being said. And like I found so often, and probably every time more or less, that other people also didn't, but they were just yeah. too afraid to say it. Or actually what they said didn't make sense. Exactly. So I've just learned over time to be the guy who says, I don't understand what is being said here.
0: But for people that doesn't understand how big Groupon was at this period of time can you just explain it to them because it was the grow, it grew yeah, it, like it was like it was like <laughs> the thing so it yeah. was just incredible because absolutely so Groupon was
1: according to Forbes at that point in time the fastest growing company ever hitting a billion dollars in revenue in four years it was the first company I think and at least my memory, to raise money in that way which by the way since has become like everyday kind of thing almost but we grew Asia you know we grew you know we grew Asia from I think 500 people to you know 3,000 people or 2,500 or something in a matter of like six months, literally. It's just ridiculous. We had, it was very funny actually. I'll tell you that when we started, so I was first in Japan and then physically and then it been in Taiwan very shortly and Hong Kong and then China. And in China, when we started, we started in an office. By the same day at 12 o'clock, the office was too small because we when we hired people, we were like, and this was an execution game. This is not like, this wasn't a thinking, this was like McDonald's standardized execute. That was like the playbook. And so the quicker we could move, the quicker we could capture. And I and I don't like to pursue business model like that anymore. But it was a lot of fun, and you know, yeah. um, But so we would hire people right away, but we'd also tell them, hey, why don't you call your boss and quit and like don't you know and ask them if you can just not come again so you could start. And so we decided to move down to the cafe in the building. It was a big building, so there was a a Costa Coffee, I think it was. And we sat in there and did the interviews, and we realized as we didn't have office space, we just hired them to work in the Costa Coffee. So what happened was we would start, I would sit in one table, I would hire somebody, he would then join me and he would sit at another table interview new people. We start to work from the Costa Coffee until I think we were about 40 people working at Costa Coffee every single day. And the manager came over to us, didn't want to kick us out, but applied for a job with us instead and said like, what the hell is going on here? Like, can I join? And so that was how it developed. I think we moved offices three times in like three or four months or something, just all the time was getting too small. but it was also it was also a time of unlimited capital, which I think is not always positive. Yeah. But the reason why I do think that more people at Groupon than at Rocket have been successful post um, post their career, sir, is because Groupon was very focused on making money, despite them not yeah. being always as successful at it. It was a place where you focused a lot on your margins, you focused on cutting costs, you focused on standardizing, you focused on always improving what you were doing. Yeah. And because it was a reasonably simple model, you could actually focus on becoming a better manager and leader in there.
0: Exactly. And I mean, there's so much things we could have discussed here, but I want to sort of get us towards nova founders. But anyway, you, you go back, you become a global partner at Rocket Internet yeah, because we, you wanted to do other projects as well. But then you think that maybe it's time to start for myself. How's that process when you start I, thinking so, about so
1: when, it? So When Groupon was IPOing, I, IPOing, I went to Oliver and said, look, this has been great. I love it. But like it was cocky of me in a way because I I I like been a Groupon for a year or so and like I was managing so many people and we had a joint venture partner in one country that wasn't fantastic to work with and so I said I said to Oliver Samwer who's you know both a global CEO for rocket but also was the ex-U.S. global CEO for Groupon hey look I want to do other things and Oliver you know for whatever reason offered this 25-year-old to get equity in everything that we would build around the world it was a small equity check in proportion to everything. But honestly unbelievably kind of him you know super generous and um and and then my job was to travel around the world and for some reason better or worse oliver really really liked me and i had an incredible connection with him and so i've always believed in what warren buffett says which is don't work for the company work for the person yeah and so you don't actually join like so too many people are joining big names but actually what you join is is joining amazing people yeah. and so it's like let me give you an example you have a partner at mckinsey that you love he's the best person ever you could meet he now quits to build his own consulting firm do you follow him and i think for most people they would say no because i want the brand and like i'm surprised a few people say yes i now get to work with that guy that i got to see one percent of the time before I now get to see him 100 of the time so for me that whole environment was everything was about oliver somewhere and getting to work with him because he was ridiculous he was before everyone else i don't think he was amazing at everything neither no. am i but i think there was a core skills that he was very very good at and he had incredible amount of belief and he let noise happen he cared less about noise than results yeah. and for a 25 year old who is trying to find himself a lot of noise gets created along the way in particular in the aggressive way that i wanted to do things and but he accepted that noise and then he let me go on and try to do the best that i could do and so i moved around the world for him and for rocket basically founding and building companies. And so my job was to land somewhere, found a business, hire the management team, and then um, and then let them run the business and either be continuously involved or let Oliver take the direct, you know, relationship with them. Um, first in Australia and later on Southeast Asia and to some degree over the phone, I was very involved in other businesses as well. But that was the predominant part of what I did.
0: And what's the conversation like when you say to Oliver that now I think it's time to to build my own company. Oh, he, he got very he got very pissed, <laughs> but like,
1: look, I can understand it in a way I, you know, it wasn't just building my own. There was there were certain other things okay. in there that I think he could have done a better job at. But like in a way, I I could also have been even more grateful. Like I yeah. was, you know. But I think he he got mad. But I but I sort of I didn't get it at the time. But I understand today. It's emotional. Like it's an emotional thing. Like look, I've helped you a lot. I've given you a lot, and now you go and quit. Yeah. Like and in in a way, of course, everybody's free. But in a way, I, I could have been more appreciative. I could have given more of my time and longer of my time rather than jumping off. Yeah. But and I I don't know if I should have done it. To be honest, it happened quite rapidly. Um, and I honestly, even when I quit, I wasn't sure I wanted to go through with it. It was if he had called, he called me and 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 wanted me to stay. But in a way, I don't I didn't like the way he acted in that context. Okay, yeah then I probably said, okay, great, then I will quit. Whereas if he had acted differently, I probably would have stayed. But I, I always regret, like, I could have finished it better. I could have given him more of my time exactly. considering everything that he did for me.
0: But but it is a cultural component here because people from the outside view Rocket as a very demanding place to work. And it mm-hmm. should be in that environment. But do you think sometimes the culture was too harsh or is it hard to say because they were executing at such a high level and pace?
1: It's a, good, it's a really good question. I think... Um, I think we had a tendency to hire fast, fire fast, where I think we should have had a hire slow, fire fast principle. Um, Actually, sometimes we had a hire fast, fire slow because we needed everyone. I think we should have been more focused on building profitable businesses. Um, I think we were very honest and direct. I think we oversimplify things sometimes, which was easy in Groupon because it was a simple business model. But once you do e-commerce, it's very complicated. I think we're too short-term sometimes, at least when I was there. Um, but I, but I, but I think in Groupon type of business models, I think look, I don't think there's good and bad cultures first. No. I think there's right culture for you, right culture for yep. me, right culture for someone else. And then I think that there are right and wrong cultures for a certain contexts. And I do think that for a lot of contexts, Rocket has and probably to some degree have a, amazing culture um, for that context and those people. But for some business model, it does not because it's too, it's too fast. Yeah. Take
0: Uber, for example. Probably not the right culture today. So they had to change the CEO. But basically, the culture created Uber. So it's very hard like
1: to be... 100%. And it's so... Like, there's so often people are trying to solve problems before they... So you cannot solve a problem in five years today all the time and be successful. Like, you have to... For example, if you trying to build a technology platform that's going to solve all your problems five years out, like you're most likely going to fail because you're going to build a platform that's too difficult to build, too difficult to maintain. And by the way, you're going to be wrong anyways, right? Yeah. And I have I have made that mistake. Like I've made that mistake of trying to build something that was too big and too complex when I shouldn't because I wanted to solve problems in five years. And so sometimes you just have to go and break shit. And like you have to get yourself into trouble, not purposely, but because you're trying to do things the right way. And so I 100% agree with you that I think it's very difficult to build a global business in a very execution-focused environment like Uber is in and like Rocket is and was
0: in without breaking some things and making some mistakes. 100%. Uh, So let's talk a bit about Nova Founders. We're sitting here in London. You have companies all over this building. Um, So the key principles that I get from Nova is to find proven business models the compare group is a perfect example of that. Working in England, let's take it all over the world. Uh, open markets where you feel like there's not too much competition. And the last one, proven execution that you typically want to hire people who have done it.
1: Yeah, so so that was how we started. Which yeah. sounds 100% like what we did in Rocket and what I believe in today. Is, it's, it's much it's much more like find business models that we're passionate about. Yeah, I don't care if they're proven or not proven. But they have to make sense. And they have to be very likely to succeed, and we have to be the right people to do them. I am not the right person to build Facebook because I'm not enough of an engineer. Yeah. I'm not the right person to build Google because I'm not enough engineer. And then we have to have great visions for what we want to build, and whether that is building the biggest, you know, um, conference in Denmark for executives, or whether that is building a human analytics firm, or whether that is building, you know, a point of sale financing business for uh for uh for, for home improvement it is about building business that we're passionate about that's it like that's everything yeah and like it's so random what we get passionate by like I am not passionate okay. about Bitcoin I'm not passionate about blockchain by the way I don't think blockchain is a business I think blockchain is a technology to build a business and one of many that you should use but um but I'm not passionate about those things. Yeah what I am passionate about is solving demands in the market that people really have that are big for them. Or creating platforms that are interesting and fascinating to work on and continue to move on. Yeah. And then, actually, much more than building and hiring proven people, I've put that upside down and I like to hire people who are extremely uh, ambitious, who love business like I do. It's really their hobby to do It's business. a lifestyle, right? It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. And then, create an environment where very young people, and you don't have to be young, yeah. but like young people tend to, tend to fit in their lives, what we do. But very young people get a chance and everybody gets a chance to run a business. Yeah. And so, for example, I have 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds who run businesses, right? With millions in revenue, multiple people hired, etc. But they could also be 95. I really don't care about how old they are. But what I care about is that they love to get direct feedback. Yeah. I want people who are, you know, this, is, this and building this business that they're building is a very big part of their life and they're you know they don't have to sack ideally they don't even sacrifice for it because it's what they want to do and then ultimately and this is i think is the most underrated thing that exists in the world is we have a lot of fun yeah like not everybody but the people who like it here who stay here have a lot of fun so what you'll see is most of us hug each other whenever we see each other yeah because we're really good friends we, like, we spend our Sunday together because we're really good friends. Yeah. And therefore, we just love to speak. Like, we'll call each other even about private stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly. But I also think that younger people are a bit more open-minded because they maybe don't, they don't have the track record yet. So they're very open to getting inputs as well. Could be, 100%.
1: So there's a good old saying that Valdemar Smith, who was the CEO, group CEO of ISS, once said to me, fantastic guy. He said, Mass, if you have a big ego, it's unlikely you become a top CEO. Yeah. While as if you become a top CEO, it's likely you're going to get a big ego. Yeah. Right. And so there's no doubt a problem in that. I was better at receiving feedback when I was 25 than I am today. I'm working very hard on becoming as good and becoming even better. But I thought it was easier. So I think there's a truth to that. I think there's a truth to the culture that we have in trying to adapt people to that culture works better when people are younger. But in no way and form do I actually care about people's age. Just like I don't care about their color, race, uh, gender, anything else. Yeah. I just care about people. I love what I call whispering talents as opposed to shouting talents. So shouting talent is the one that everybody can see. Yeah. Everybody wants, everybody can see. I love whispering talents. Yeah. Whispering talents are the people who are just as good, but other people can't see them. Exactly. And the reason why I'm passionate about it is because for me, it's like building a business. So when I build a business, I have to find opportunities in the market that other people have not seen. Yeah. And I go and create it. I find that when I find people that other people haven't seen, I create opportunities. I find opportunities in the market that other people haven't seen, meaning people. Yeah. And I go and create them to the potential that they have. That I'm passionate about as well.
0: And But the thing that I find very interesting is that I just recently read a book about Blackstone. And basically, he, Stephen says that once you go out and start on your own, when you don't have that brand behind you, it's so much harder than you think. Because I can imagine you coming from Rocket Internet, you probably thought that, I have all this track record. I worked at Rocket. So it should be easy for me to gain capital and to execute on it. But both the key lessons from Blackstone is that once you start, you're completely new. It's super hard to get the first funding because you don't have the brand behind you anymore. Was that the same experience you had when starting Nova? same. Yeah. So
1: the day before I quit Rocket, I had you know thousands of people working in the part of the organization I was managing. I had multiple big investors that I was having calls with all the time. I didn't have. I had the connection to them, but Oliver Summer was always the one with the direct going and getting them. He was always racing the capital, and the day after, nobody gave a shit about me, right? So people who wanted to join me and work for me directly and try to get everything they could do to get exposure the next day didn't give a shit, right? Exactly. Because they no longer had that shirt that said "I'm Manchester City, Manchester United, whatever the hell is." So that was a huge blow to me. It was very emotionally difficult to go from mattering to not mattering at all, going from having my phone ring all the time to not ringing at all. It was very, very difficult. And I had to go and prove myself from zero as if, you know, it wasn't the case. Exactly. I always find it funny today with, you know, people who who I used to work with, who worked in my teams, like said, you know, well, we were at the same level. I don't care, but like, you know, it's not really true. And those are the kind of things you have to work with. But what you very quickly find out is, it's all ego play. It's all a amygdala brain plays, right? But what I think is, therefore I think in many ways sometimes it's easier when you're young because you have no expectations to it. Like, but I'm at a place today where nobody can treat me almost poorly because I have no expectations. Like I've I have, I've, I've tried so many things happen. Yeah. People treating you poorly, investors that try to screw you, um, employees that try to steal money, you know, all those things. That I've just learned one thing, which is, You know, people are fantastic and do the best thing, you know, that works for them. And, you know, in a way, we just need to create the platform where people love to work. We do interesting stuff that we love to spend our time on. If it works well, it works well. If it doesn't work well, it doesn't work well. But we've had a a tremendous time in the meantime in the process.
0: The first companies you funded or started in Nova, is it Compare Group, which was the uh, first one? Line or? Line was the first one, oh, Line Line. which is a digital marketing agency that yeah. we started
1: because we said, look, we're going to build. I love to build platforms. So for me, Line Line was a platform, meaning it was, hey, we're going to build a bunch of businesses, which is what I love to do. You know, I'm a solo entrepreneur, so I build companies. And um, I said, look, every company I'm going to build most likely going to be needing some kind of marketing function. Yep. Let yep. me go and build that marketing function first. So we serviced ourselves a little bit and then we went and got other clients as well and we ended up growing the agency to 170 people and we sold it for fifty million dollars a few years later than we in found it. In Asia, right? So it was headquartered in Malaysia, but it was active in Singapore, in Indonesia, and in Philippines and in Hong Kong. And like yeah. around Thailand,
0: Vietnam. How important are the first companies in your mind? Do you feel like you have to succeed with them to keep raising you have Yes, succeed the with fund? everything you Yeah, can. of
1: course. But like I, I don't have a fund, right? So
0: yeah, but but um I think you should succeed with
1: everything that you do. I think the worst part you can do in your first business, I think almost, is not fail or succeed. It's the part in between. Yeah. It's the part where you're stuck, but you don't have a good business. Like I sometimes meet people and I look straight at them and I say, I hope you fail. And they'll, like, they'll look at me and say like, what a douchebag. And I explain to them, no, what I really mean is you're stuck in a business that's never going to be great. You don't really like what you're doing, but you have exactly enough cash flow or raised enough money that you're committed to this or have enough employees. And so it's so important that when we decide to go and build a business that we are really believing that this is going to live up to the potential of what we think we should live up to in life. Yeah. Because if you, a, like, if you build a business and you raise capital, you're stuck. Like, you can't leave that business. Of course you can, but you're an asshole if you do it because investors have given you their hard-earned money. If you hire people, you're an asshole if you leave it because like, they've joined because of you. Exactly. So you're stuck in whatever business you decide to pursue for the next 10 years. I was very lucky to sell some businesses earlier, which is never even my goal. But you know, also a
0: business that I've owned for owned for over ten years. So beware, whatever you start, you're going to work on for the next ten years. Exactly. But now we also started buying some companies. We you just came from Denmark, mm-hmm. very successful conference. Talk a bit about the company there, and also how you evaluate companies you want to get involved with. So in general, when I
1: evaluate. Uh, companies i want to get involved with the first and foremost thing that's binary for me is do i think it's going to be fun like binary very very simple i am not one for buying businesses because i don't have enough personal capital so if i buy something going forward and also historically it's because i buy it out of bankruptcy i like the hard things and i found out that bankruptcy is incredible opportunity because for me i've built almost all the business i have from scratch and so, building business is what I like to do. Buying a business out of bankruptcy is like building a business, except you save three years of your life, potentially. Exactly. And so, you get a jump start. But if you're private equity, buying something out of bankruptcy is a lot of fucking work. So, like, not a lot of people want to buy particular, particularly in the country that I come from. Yeah. So, that's why I sort of, you know, tried that path as well. But, um, Look, we we had a conference that's a uh, a conference called Present Summit where we bring together current and future leaders. So it's everything from the 23-year-old who's ambitious and wants to become a leader, to the you know to the 78-year-old who is still running a business or just wants to stimulate his brain. We bring them together. We find some of the best speakers in the world. Every everything from probably the best leadership speaker in the world called Benjamin Sander. We had a, a woman called Sharon Lecter, who you know co-authored uh, 24 books, including Rich Dad Poor Dad, which is you yep. know sold 34 million copies. We had everything from that to Julian Treasure, who I think is the most viewed TED Talker speaker ever. And so we bring them together. It's an incredible experience. Um, we invest a lot in the feel and the experience itself. And then um, we create an incredible atmosphere for people to network. And I can say all these things, and I know it sounds super promotional when I say incredible and great and all those things, but what I'm really referring to is what an amazing
0: job the team did. They're so incredible. Is the customer experience at the Standard Conference too bad? And is it because I, you said previously that you tried to find industries which has basically shitty customer experience? Can you? What is a t- typical experience in a conference, and how can you ev- evolve it? Like I guess you guys did. Is it all about the network, the feeling about it, or?
1: Um, let's see if I reveal too many in- <laughs> industry secrets Look, the answer is quite complicated, and yet it's simple. The answer is like every other business. There's a huge competitive advantage of being very, very detailed in what you do, and being um, and really caring about how to optimize everything. So I think the mindset that we bring works in a lot of other industries, which is. We go in, we care about an extreme amount of details that nobody else cares about, and then we try to optimize those details together um, in relation to strategy that we have across it. So what is the value proposition that we want to offer to the people joining, and how do we just create more value than anyone else in that value proposition? That's what we do. But honestly, it works whether it's Vendigo and home improvement financing
0: or whatever it can be in the world. Basically, okay. So this is a segment that you, you touched upon it a bit earlier, but basically some key lessons you learned from the people you work with. So let's start with Oliver. What was the most important thing you learned from him? Um, Oliver, one thing was
1: uh, massive action, which is the same as Anthony Robbins says, which is really, look, you want to find a law firm, contact 20 law firms. You want to find a telemarketing firm, contact 20 telemarketing firms. You want to hire a new recruiter, contact 200 recruiters, right? Um, so that was one, I think the believability that anything is possible in the world, Oliver had to a very large degree. And then I think the, the third thing is, and this took me a long time is really, my God, the amount of 21 year old and for that matter, 46 year old, but 21 year olds who ended up running business that did incredible jobs, outstanding, right? Really, you know, there's a reason why in general life, people don't get better. Right? It's very interesting. Research shows that doctors don't become better five years after they graduate because of lack of deliberate learning. It's the same reason why 65-year-olds don't run every business in the world. Mm-hmm. So it means that actually people don't really improve that much throughout life. They get, learn new things. They overgeneralize. They forget things. They yeah. get less energy. They get more energy. But people actually don't improve that much. And so what I'm fascinated by is the opportunity to find the people who are humble, who want to put together the IKEA furniture, but who at the same time have the energy and ability to go and have very senior conversations so they can go and sell the product or have the strategic knowledge so they can set the strategy, understand how to lead. And I think you can find that at every age. And so I was very fascinated to see how weird kinds of talents that we were able to find that we didn't expect to find that were just outstanding. And you you can't always predict it or very rarely can you predict it by resume. Yeah. Next one, Stefan Brun, your partner, right? Stefan, is, um, Stefan is, my, is my Wikipedia. Like he's a live version. I think he knows more than Wikipedia does. Why? Just reads a lot? Or? Yeah, he just like, he, he reads so much. <laughs> a, he reads so much. He's so interested. He remembers. Stefan is very, uh, is very, first of all, Stefan is a rock. I mean, like we've worked together for a long time. He's extremely knowledgeable. He really challenges me, which is fantastic. He understands things much deeper than I
0: do. Uh, in many ways, that's... Uh... Is that partnership a key? Because at least from the outside, you, you, you see a lot of Matt, but you don't see so much of Stefan. Uh, and I guess that's a natural reason for it. But how important is it to have those partners that you bring along with you? 100%. In particular for
1: me, because what I'm really good at, opposite what people think is I'm not a very good day-to-day executor. I'm horrible at problem solving in the sense of actually going and fixing the problem. Okay. I am very good at strategy, which is why I can, I you know, that's why I was 29, 30-year-olds when I got on the board of a big Swiss bank. You know, probably the youngest board member for any bank in Europe, I think, at the time. Um, and the reason for that is because I'm very good at understanding strategy. I'm very good at understanding um, um, having a vision for where we should go. Yeah analyzing data and building a plan for how we get there. I'm less good at actually making a conference happen day on the day. Okay. But I'm very good at going in and finding everything that we can do better. And I'm very good at predicting what people want, for example. Yeah. So I'm bad at 99% of the things that I would like to be good at, but I like what Ray Dalio says, which I think is so true. It's not about me being good at everything that's led no. to any success. It's actually about how knowing how to deal with the things that I'm not good at, and knowing your blind spots, and as knowing, well. knowing the blind spots, but then knowing how to deal with them. Exactly, because if you know your blind spots, but you don't know how to deal with them, you that's have a terrible. problem. Yeah, exactly. That's why Christopher, Matthias, Jamie, Jason, uh, Eric, you know, Stefan, you know, all these people are. Are very different than me. Yeah. Um, and they're I, I don't need more me.
0: Like I the, the whole thing would collapse if it was more me, but they're very, very good at what they do. Another guy which I think is fascinating is Rasmus Ankerson. You talked about it a bit, whispering talents yeah. and stuff. So some key lessons from him. Yeah. So Rasmus, first of all, the context is
1: you know an incredible
0: guy. He's written
1: five or six books, Goldmine Effect, which is one of my personal favorites, uh, Hunger in Paradise, um, and a bunch of other books, Leaders, DNA, etc. He's the uh, chairman for a Danish football team called um, which he acquired together with an uh, English guy, uh, Matthew, a couple of years ago. Rasmus had written a lot of books about how to use data and how to h- find whispering talents, um, but hadn't practiced in this as much as he had written about it, other than coaching some consulting assignments. But then he convinced Matthew to buy this football team that had never won the Danish league. They won it the first year for the first time ever. They didn't win the second, but they won the third again, which was incredible. He took a unprofitable football team and made it profitable. And then later on, you know, he became the sports director for Brentford here in the UK and doing an amazing job with them. And so what I love about Rasmus, he introduced me to the Whispering Shouting Talents, uh, which he also wrote about in a book called Goldmine Effect, which yep. is one of it's my high recommendations. Amazing me. book. you read it? Yeah, 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 it's super it's cool. good. It's an amazing book. Um, and so I love that. I love how he thinks... You know, if you read Hunger in Paradise, did you make it through that as well? No, or well, I haven't. It? haven't so, it. like, you know, there's this good thing about um, whether or not KPI is predicting or lacking indicators, right? So when, when are you actually going to predict your future success and when are you yeah. just looking at the past success? Um, but I've learned, look, I've learned so much from, from Rasmus about rationality and using data. Yeah. Which is actually funny because Rasmus didn't even go to university. No. Right. But, you know, who says you need to go to university to leverage numbers, right?
0: And just to say something else about Rasmus, he actually went to to Kenya, I think, to study these yeah. athletes. He went to Jamaica because he found that there's some gold mines here to actually yeah. produce enormous talents. Yes. So super impressive work, to yeah. be
1: honest. So he has this good example of, you mentioned Jamaica, right? So there is a, a coach in Jamaica who is who's produced Usani Ball and some other sort of top sports athletes. And he, he the, the coach itself is a mathematician. He's... I would call him overweight to you know say the least, and you know, a big guy. And he has Usani Ball training with him. And at that point in time, he meets another runner, which is called Asafa Powells. And Asafa Powells does not run particularly well on numbers compared to Usani Bolt and other top athletes, but he runs well considering the training he's had. Exactly. And that was where the whispering talent idea for Rasmus came, which is why is it? And so this trainer took him in, Asafa Powell, and said, look, I'm going to take him in because I see his potential considering the training that he has. And
0: that's the, uh, that's the sort of whispering talent idea that I love. That's awesome. Your mom and dad, because they both had some fascinating careers and some career shifts. Yeah. So uh, you talked about them before, but I think it's worth mentioning to our, to our listeners.
1: Sure. So look, my, my parents are, you know, A, they're not together since I was two. Um, my dad was a journalist uh, later on, quit his job at the sort of national uh, broadcaster and, and became, started to become a, 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 a psychotherapist. So he started taking a four-year education when I think he was 50. And then he redefined his career again at 58 or something like this, starting, starting to be on stage again and, and sort of giving courses. And so, I'm, you know, my dad is, is super cool. So I discuss very personal things with him. I discuss business things. He may not understand it, but he always has good advice. He tries to understand how I feel. He's one of those, you know, there's two types of, you know, psychologists and psychopar- psychotherapists as parents that the ones who knows how you should feel and the ones who actually ask questions, right? Yeah. And it's always harder to give your own family advice, but my dad is very, very good at it. So he always asks me questions other than, you know, instead of telling me how I should feel or how yeah. I should behave. My mom is the most loving person in the world. Everybody, you know, I, I can still burp and she like claps and, you know, she's she still rubs my feet when I'm lying. I think we we're all, with, <laughs> with our parents, we we're all like, 10 years old again or exactly. something. And my mom is just the most loving person in the world. And having that positivity around people that she has is something I can only inspire towards.
0: But she's also a coach, right? My mom
1: is, My mom is. Uh, he's, she's also an educated coach, a mindfulness coach. And yeah. but she worked as a social counselor for many years. So she worked with people who've been unemployed yeah. for a very long time. But like similar to my dad, and even though they're not together, they're both the kind of people who at 50, at 45, at 55, again, and 60, and even at 65, redefine their careers all the time.
0: Yeah. So another concept that I've learned from you is the concept of being an insecure overachiever. Sure. And just to get a, just a personal story, because I worked in one of Matt's company in Lisbon, and that was actually, uh, I think the, the Ray Dalio principle, pain plus reflection equals yeah. progress. That was so true because I couldn't sleep. I didn't reach my metrics. I felt like I'm doing a horrible job. But actually, it was just because I cared so much about reaching the goals, so actually, I found that experience to be very good because it just shows that I actually I want to make it work, right? Yeah. And then when you experience that pain for so long, you get very creative. So then you try, okay, how can I solve this? How yeah. can I solve this? It has to be another way. So tell me a bit about the concept of being an insecure overture because I think it's actually pretty important in order to succeed.
1: So first of all, I think that if you take the top consulting firms, management consultants, for example, investment banks and probably other firms, something in the range of 90% of the people are what we call insecure achievers. Insecure achievers are insecure, meaning they're afraid they're not going to achieve. But because they're afraid they're not going to achieve, they not only achieve, but they overachieve, right? And so I always say there's a huge difference between good private psychology and good work psychology. I think good private psychology is actually you feeling very comfortable and relaxed all the time and everything will be fine and by the way, work doesn't matter that much and all those things. And then if you look at how many people have psychology that actually succeed, it's actually the inverse of that. Work probably represents too much. It gives them too much stress and a lot of other things that would be great that it didn't do, but it does. And therefore, they want to go and deliver, right? Exactly. And then they have a mentality probably very often that is if their stomach hurts a little bit, they don't quit, but they go and try to find out how to solve it. Um, I'm a very big believer that the quality of our lives is determined by the quality of questions that we ask, right? Which is what Anthony Robbins says. The quality of our lives is determined by the quality of the questions we ask. Why? Because questions work like blingers on a horse. Yeah. Okay. They create focus. Now, so I think what is the most important thing to work on in the world is not how to answer questions well, but how to ask questions well. Because you can only get the answers that you of the questions you ask. You ask somebody, why is this person such an idiot? You will get an answer. You ask, what can I learn from this? You will get an answer. And so I've, I've worked a lot of this. I've been fascinated by this topic of how to ask better questions for the last 10 years.
0: What are some of the best questions to ask? So I've
1: now finally found out what I think currently is the best question I'm able to ask, which is who do I or we need to be to achieve X?
0: Exactly. Right?
1: Yeah. So if you say, look, I want to have, I want to build a um, world-class podcast, which I can live off of. Let's say that was your goal. You know, you could say, who do I need to be in order to to achieve that? Right. What what do we need to do to achieve that? Yeah, Um, And I think that's such a good question because it opens up to a world of possibility where everything is possible and where all you're trying to find out is that. Exactly.
0: I think that's such a valuable concept. It was actually the next topic, but in in addition to that, I also put how to build high standards in life. Yes. Because I remember I saw a video again many years ago where we said like, you're all in or not at all. It was related to sugar at the time. I don't know if you kept that promise, but you, you I think you said like if you want to build a new habit you have to go all in or just forget about it. How do you build habits and can you talk a bit about that?
1: Look, I'm I I would love to be better building habits to be fair. I am a little bit extreme at times so like I don't eat meat, I don't eat sugar and you know maybe tomorrow I don't do something else, right? I don't know. I don't know if I think you have to be like that. I okay. usually say the number one thing you can do if you talk about food is to be disciplined enough to eat it in moderation. Yep. The second best is to not do, eat bad stuff at all. And the third best is to eat too much, right? Exactly. But I don't know, maybe I just can't get to moderation. Maybe that's my issue. Um, but I do think that the standard, you know, the person with the highest standards may not win the battle, but definitely wins the war. Exactly. Right. And so our standards really defines who we are. And so what are standards? Standards is when you don't live up to them or achieve them, you don't feel comfortable with who you are, right? So for example, certain people can get a B or a C or an E and say, great, I got a C that I'm really proud. And other people will get an A and say like, shit, I didn't get an A plus, right? Yeah. That is standards. And so we all have standards. We may not be conscious about our standards, but we all have standards. So I know that the weight that I have right now, I was, uh, eight, I was just eighty. I always, I'm eight, one eighty 100, five tall, and I weigh usually around eighty somewhere. I was just weighing eighty four. Now I'm, I, I just today for the first time in a while, I'm below, I'm seventy nine something. I have big bones, No. Um <laughs> and um, and that, but like I was uncomfortable at eighty four. That is a stand, like that's a standard. My standard yeah. is I need to be closer to eighty, maybe seventy eight even. So I was above my... And that's when I start to feel bad. You're like looking down at me now, is yeah, it? Yeah, I'm just it's like... I'm bad. just okay. trying to... <laughs> How much do you weigh?
0: I think around 80. 80, And okay. I'm the same height
1: as you. Okay. Guess. Shit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. But exactly. But you look great. Uh, for everybody who's just listening, he looks great. Um, and so... Um, so anyway, so uh, so so, so my, my point of this being um, that that's our standard. Now, the problem is that we have... St- It's not the problem that we don't have standards. We all have standards. The problem is just we're not conscious about them. So if you want to raise your performance, raise your standards. I'm a big believer in that. So how do you raise your standards? Well, one, you become conscious of your standards. You redefine your standards. Because it's not enough to just say, I want to be a billionaire. You have to figure out why that's important to you. And then you try to associate yourself with people with higher standards than you. Now, different areas, different associations. Like, don't associate yourself with me for like working out. Like, you know, you should do better than that. Go and look at somebody else. Mm. Maybe for certain parts of business, maybe I'm the right person to look at, maybe not. So different areas, different,
0: you know, people. I also think it's super important to, to be aware of the fact that high standards compounds as well. Yes. So basically, if you, if you fuel or if you put together high standards with compound interest, yeah, basically have a winning formula.
1: Very say. well said. You should get that one trademarked. Like that <laughs> will be quoted on the internet, I so <laughs> think well said.
0: Uh, I want to do a quick uh, fire here with uh, some overrated or underrated concepts. So I yeah. say a concept and you th- say, according to you, if you think it's underrated or overrated. Cool. So just start with being a good salesman. Overrated or underrated? Underrated. Why?
1: Um, because everything is sales, like your team convincing them, convincing your girlfriend what to watch in the movies, like convincing your, your, your kid, like I have a two and a half, three, two and a three year old, you know, convincing him to put on both shoes. You know, that's like sales right there. That's like hardcore sales, by the way, <laughs> the hardest stuff you can do. You know, get, him to wear, get him to wear a jacket. Um, so I think it's just everything is like I love what Six Sick Sigler said, which is um, if you're in, if you do anything with people in life, you're in sales, which I think is very true.
0: I agree. The, let's go some on some tech questions. The impact of self-driving cars next five, ten years. We talked about it for so long, but it's not so much happening quite. So yet, I so. think it's
1: overrated. Yeah. In I think it's going to happen more. Yeah. But like everybody thought it was gonna happen like 2020. Yeah. Like it's not. I think we're much further away than that. But in life, I think it's underrated. Yeah. I think in the short run, I think it's overrated.
0: Being a startup founder.
1: Being a startup founder, completely overrated. Yeah. Completely. It is so like when I started building, wanted to build my first company quitting McKinsey in 2009, one of my friends said very correctly and to some degree with a joke, but like how people thought about that. he says, mass being an entrepreneur is just another word for being unemployed. Right. That's what he said to me. And of course he was joking, but in a way he was not, it was not cool 10 years ago in the same way as today. And it will not be cool in the same way as 10 years from now. Right now it's like rock stars. It's like, it's yeah. ridiculous. So, and I think it'll make people unhappy because too many people are too focused on what's hot and what's sexy. Yeah. And a lot of people are much happier to be number two or be number five and organization than to be number one. So what is going to happen is it's going to become unsexy again. Companies are going to fail. You know, the whole bubble will burst. Everybody will hate all the tech entrepreneurs because we were the ones who made the bubble burst by raising too much capital, at least an impact on it. It's starting we'll to happen. See
0: it. We work and you have so many cases that it's just crazy.
1: It's already happening. Absolutely. And so I, I think it will... Uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to it because I will still be here doing the same thing. Exactly.
0: Moving abroad to learn or work?
1: Um, completely underrated. I and agree. like even just going to countries that you have no idea. Like I I go to Saudi Arabia because I have friends there. Um, I actually think it's a I think it's an interesting place to yep. be. I think it's one of the fastest moving countries. Yes, from a different point than where we are in Western society. But hey, they're jumping 400, 500, 10, 1,000 years of Western society evolution in like matter of a couple of years. Um, but like just go there and like realize what does it mean like what does it mean to be in like maybe they not go to Syria right now but I was just in Jordan like go and experience these societies go and see what it is and I think there's a big difference still between going somewhere on holiday yeah. and actually having to live there because you have to integrate yourself to the side in a different way and you have to you're getting challenged on what your beliefs are that you thought were obvious Yeah. and I love that I couldn't agree more and by the way you can be whoever the hell you want to be yeah. when you go to a new country and, and that's that super
0: fun right yes you start over again
1: you start over who do I want to be? You forget everything your parents have told you, everything yeah, your teachers have yeah, yeah. told you, all your friends have told yeah, you you yeah. couldn't be anything or you couldn't achieve X, right? Yeah. And you could be that in a new country, in a new country.
0: Super context. exciting. Building your own personal brand and business? Um, um,
1: it was underrated for me how much brand means. I think over people probably, other people probably rated it correctly. I think I didn't understand the importance of brand. Um, and I don't mean personal branding, yep. doing podcasts, and you, I just think just understanding what's getting communicated about you, and actually being on the forefront of communicating that yourself. Yeah, somebody—it's much harder to redefine stories than is yep. defined in the first place. I let too many people define who I am in exactly. society. Uh, and, but look, I wouldn't have—I don't know if I would have changed anything, but
0: I, I definitely want to do things differently for the next ten years than I've done the last no. ten. Difficult dilemma: to centralize or decentralize? Decentralize. Yeah, but the theory is that, of course, centralization takes down costs, mm-hmm. makes it more efficient, but it's hard to make people feel like an owner in sort of when they're... 100%. Like, it's, like I always say, centralization works better on slides, decentralization
1: works better in real life. Or in Excel, right? For Yeah, in Excel, <laughs> but like for 95% of all cases, right? Uh, decentralization... You know, I don't know, Facebook, like they have to create one platform probably yep. for the world. and They can, but for most businesses, decentralized, decentralized, decentralized. But look, it's also the problem with the answer is it's black and white. And I don't think and, yeah. the answers are black and white. Exactly. And it depends on where you're on the business and what stage. And again, sometimes you just need to centralize first to decentralize. And you're going to hate yourself for having to do it later or the other way around. Sometimes you have to decentralize, get a billion problems, but you find out what works and then you centralize and then it's much better. So you also have to be aware sometimes that it's an evolution. You can't jump the steps.
0: Definitely. So this one is called finish the sentence or paragraph. So I start off and you finish Finish. the sentence. Finish. I already started there. Yeah, good. (laughs) (laughs) The best businesses that are built needs to? Um, Needs to have passionate founders. My worst decision ever in business was? Not to hire the people that I need today five years ago. The only way the Nordics can become a relevant global innovation area is to. Um,
1: start to actually work more hours, I think. <laughs> like I realize don't, don't
0: regulate like innovation
1: out don't, of the country. Don't regulate innovation out of, no, but actually a completely different thing. I don't know if you have that in other countries, but in Denmark, we have a tendency to be very negatively about rich people or about CEOs, about people who perform. Of course, the same in Norway. Oh, it is it worse, probably. Okay, but like, I mean, what are we trying to speak poorly about the people who are going to create be part of creating in the future? Like, we're gonna we have, we tax them too high, and now we're gonna judge them very very tough. It's the same people, by the way, who say don't you know don't generalize, are the same people who always generalize about CEOs. Yeah, right. So I think it's a really big problem that people are teaching. Like, if you go to India, and a dad stands with a son and they're dirt poor and somebody drives by in a Ferrari you know what they say the dad says to the son if you work really hard son you may achieve that one day if that happens in Denmark or maybe Norway maybe in Sweden maybe in other countries the dad says to the son that guy has probably stolen the money he's a crook he's an asshole he's something like how do we expect our kids to go and achieve if we told them that when you achieve you're a bad person this is so damaging for society. Like yeah. I have no understanding why anybody would. Yeah, no, I do understand why people do it emotionally, but I have no understand logically, no ideology why people do it.
0: My favorite business books ever are uh, my own. No, uh, <laughs> no. Uh, um,
1: I think I think a couple. Uh, memos from the Chairman uh, by the former Chairman, unfortunately late uh, Chairman of of Bear Stearns. Um, uh, Ray Dalio's uh, Principles, outstanding. And can be read like seven times and you're still not even understood it fully. Um, There's a very good book up here. It sounds really American and it is in a way. But title is called How to Double Your Profits in Six Months Less. Um, I think The 3G Way is a very good book. Um, uh, The Art of Possibility by Benjamin Sander. uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Sharon Lecter and Robert Kiyosaki. Seven Habits by Stephen Covey. You know, these are like must read books for me. Yeah
0: um i would add ben horowitz books as well ben horowitz hard thing
1: thing about hard things yes Uh, i'm thinking about because i give out a lot of these books when people come here (laughs) i think those are some of the most important ones um but like look there are so many incredible books but those i think are like must
0: read books for me definitely if people want to become successful they need to one work their ass off two, ask the right questions three be willing to have other people think they're wrong so we're coming to the last paper in uh, 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 uh The graph you had, it's, it's one of the most amazing graphs I've seen in my life. And it's basically uh, pissing off people and your impact. Can you explain that? You remember that graph, right?
1: Yeah, 100%. So first of all, I completely stole it from like, a search <laughs> on the internet somewhere. But like, it's, it's very famous. It says it's a graph that has two axes to it. So one of them is how big is your impact on the world. And the other axis is how many people you've pissed off. Which grows exponentially. Which then grows exponentially between the two. But there is a correlation between people pissed off and like impact in the world. And of course, this one was actually done before Trump. So that may even be more (laughs) true today. But um, I think there is a truth. Like the problem in the way is many of us, if we had lived, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, whenever it was, and gone to people and said, look, the world is not flat it's round you know a lot of us would not have communicated that like a lot of people wouldn't have said it or they would have looked you know what happened they would have said it put it on facebook somebody would have made a bad comment they would have changed their mind again right yeah like that's what would have happened um and so you got to be willing to be told you're wrong yeah like a lot of people say to me but Mass, like the other nine people in the room in this board think you're wrong so what so did yeah. those for me it's the same as saying the I say the world is round and like you say it's flat, like it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Um, and so my goal is not to have everybody agree
0: with me. My goal is to be right. But this is so important because people who are ambitious needs to calculate that if you're gonna get out there, you're gonna have maybe some bad articles about you. You're gonna yes. get into situations that maybe you're not proud of, but you have to go through them. It's sort of like Ray Dalio says, you're going through a jungle, of course that experience is gonna yes. cause some things to happen. Yeah. But I think, I'm taking from the Nordic's perspective here because once you're pissing people off, maybe you you feel like, okay, I'm doing something wrong now because I shouldn't make people. But this is so important to understand that you actually have to do that in order to have the impact you want to.
1: 100%. So it's not a goal to piss people off. No, no, no. But, But a lot of people like status quo and a lot of people don't understand the future until it's arrived. Like, I really am the opposite of believing with some of the crowds. I think the crowd is always behind. and By definition, they always are because they're always early adopters, right? So, like, so many people, my dad who said, like, I will never own a cell phone. Yeah. Of course he does. Like, he doesn't go anywhere without it, right? So, people are just behind and that's fine. We have to, of course, be honest and listen. Yeah. Are we being, you know, are we being unfair? Are we being wrong ourselves, you know, listen to the data and what they say? But I've had plenty of situations where I think people were significantly wrong, even though there are more people, ten times more people who said that they were right than you know I was, right? And yeah. I still feel like that
0: today. But let you do you let articles that you said there were one article like Matt's only shows his successes, but don't yeah. show us the that, Does that bother you? Because you're yeah, a human it, being, right? So it's very hard uh, to it like, bothers me. Like
1: that destroyed, like it destroys an incredible amount of life joy for me when people do that. I don't understand why people have a tendency to want to make other people feel
0: bad you know I because get it a little, clicks maybe on the newspapers so I listen. get it
1: that was, was about to say I get a little bit more if you if you if you're a journalist and you know a it's part of your job and like that's your modus operandi and all yep. those things I get less people want to put bad comments on other people's stuff there's so much to put comments on in social media just go and bring people up like <laughs> yeah. go and help people to make people feel better honestly it's a bit like you know what the cool thing about making people feel great is opposite money there's unlimited amount of the potential out there exactly there's unlimited amount of potential to be able to make people feel better. But when you make people feel worse, you're like, it's like taking money and burning it in a way. Yeah. It's like taking food. It's like taking food and burning it, right? We don't have enough food right now. We should have more food for the people who don't have yeah. it. But like, we're not going to take the food and burn it. Like, that would be ridiculous. Why do we do that with compliments and like telling people how great they are and how amazing they are? And, you know, it's, it's challenging because of course we also want to tell them what we think is right. So not an easy thing no but i i just i am super conscious even by the way i'm inverse about what most people are so i get politer the further down you go in society and i get harder and more expecting the higher up i go most people suck up to the yeah and then and then when they go down to the cafe they're rude to the staff i am super nice to the homeless on the street yeah i'm super nice to the you know uh the the staff i am if anything you know tougher or more expectations as you move up in society super important
0: i want to talk a bit about fatherhood how has that changed you there's a new boss in the house can you tell me a bit about that experience because you go full full in on the businesses so has that changed you some people have to like take down the the amount of work when they become father i don't know How has that situation been
1: i think it's changed me on a couple points so the first point is now i really think one of my big mantras are high sense of urgency and input um very patient and output Right, so that means, I think most people are very, very, very patient in input and very impatient in output. What does that mean? That means they are have the manana syndrome on execution. Hey, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it later. They don't take massive execution, etc. But then they want to achieve results tomorrow. And I think part of, and I've probably always been impatient input, impatient output. So that means I've always been very hardworking wanting to get things done today, this next hour, next 15 minutes. But then I don't understand why the results didn't happen right away. I think having a kid has given me a very long-term perspective on output. Yeah. So that's the first thing it's changed me. I am, you know, uh, become softer than I was before, which is relative. Because <laughs> I'm very, like, here's the thing. People don't get it. First of all, I'm a super introvert, right? And a lot of people don't get that because I'm decently good at speaking. But it creates problems for me because people don't understand why I don't always want to socialize. They don't understand why when I'm with people, there are very few people I can click it well enough with that I, I I get super energetic and I just want to do it. I remember somebody said, you know, why did I never want to take him out for a drink, somebody that we work with? And it's just because it's just, they would understand that if I was like a super nerd who was sitting in front of a computer all the time, but because I'm I'm sort of extroverted in a yep. way, people don't understand that like I need a lot of time to myself. Yeah, And... I, am so, I can't be socially awkward as well. Like I have bad jokes and like I'm not, you know, so I'm not always funny as I want to be. And I sometimes have a hard time finding myself in a group and you know those things. Um, and so in a similar way, I am sometimes very direct and hard with people. Mostly because I'm very hard on myself and I sometimes project that over. But also because I, as a person, really want honest, direct feedback from people. I want to be told what I don't do well. Yep. And I sometimes project that over on other people who actually want to hear what they do well. But I've always gone to my boss and said, "Don't tell me what I do well. Yep. Just tell me what I can't do better." Um, so, but having a kid is making me more soft around the edges of those things. I yeah. hope I get even more of a time. I want to be a lovey dobby cuddly bear <laughs> on it. Um, okay. But um, but that's part of it. I, I whenever I'm in London, I bring my son to work uh, to to uh, the nursery every single day, without exception, never miss a day. Uh, when I'm in London, I spend my whole weekend with him. You know, we go to Lickoland, we, we have a yearly subscription to Lickoland We have a yearly subscription to the Sioux here. Mm. Go to the Sioux Lickoland I spend all day with him. Yeah. But not everything is about him. So I usually, I got my mom came with this really good example for me, which is imagine that you and your partner and everybody else is on a line of a circle. So you draw a circle. Everybody else is on that line. I think you have two options as a dad or a mom. Do you put the kid in the middle or do you put the kids on the circle line? If they're on that line of the circle, they're one out of how many participants are in that circle. That means if, if, if you and I have a kid together, um, we're three people in that circle. That means we get roughly a third each of attention. Maybe the kids get 50%, mm. we get 25% each, whatever it is. But that means that everything is about them. When people put their kids in the circle, in the middle of the circle, everything is about them. Yeah. And that's what I think leads n- to not great parenting, is my belief, because I don't think it's happy. It's not great for the kids in the long run. But I think it also leads to unhappy parents, which anyways yeah. leads to unhappy kids. Yeah. So what, I, what I'm decently good at is to say on a Saturday, look, we're going to go to Lake Oland. We're going to spend seven hours there. We're going to have a lot of fun together. But... Before we go there, dad has a meeting, which you're going to join. Yep. And we're going to have a one-hour meeting with this person that I want to meet. And, you know, you can join. You can run around, play football. or You can be part of the meeting, listener. You can sit in my lap and we can cuddle while I talk to this person. Yeah. Or you can do whatever. But not not 12 out of 12 hours in that day is about you. And I think it's doing those two things. And then I'm very, yeah. very, I'm very, I'm, I over kiss my kids sometimes. Like <laughs> I, I grew up with parents who
0: I think helped me too much. So I'm, I'm a big hawker. I'm a big kisser. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I just. Oh, it's the best thing in the world.
0: But in summary, it's been a good thing. You think you become better as a in businessman? In all ways, as summaries, it's
1: been a good thing. Yeah. I don't care if it's made me a better businessman, which I think it has. Yeah. But I care about the person that it's made me and how happy it's made me and how we have the most. Everybody, we I think we have the most amazing kid in the world. But I guess everybody <laughs> thinks that. But other parents tell us as well, just to be clear. So maybe they're biased or paid to do it. But uh, look, it's the most amazing thing in the world. I would give everything up tomorrow. And if I feel like I cannot. Uh, deliver as a parent. And if I think I'm not being the right parent that I should be, I will stop doing my
0: business things in a heartbeat. We're getting into the end, Mats. It's been so much fun. We can be talking for hours. You're so
1: well prepared. I like this great
0: (laughs) question you're asking. This is fantastic. Can we, is there some way to summarize this? What's going to be important moving ahead for people who want to execute and build businesses? Because our listeners are very into business and they also want to build their own stuff. Yes. Is it possible to kind of summarize this talk, give them some guiding points? What's important? Ask the right questions. And when you want to ask the right questions,
1: be really conscious about the questions you ask. Try to find out, am I asking questions for short-term gain or long-term gain? Meaning, is it my amygdala brain, my fight, flight, freeze brain? Or is yeah. my prefrontal cortex my smart brain, if you will? So focus on asking the questions. If you don't know if you're asking the right question, do what I do. Go to other people and say, this is the question I'm asking myself. Am I being honest with myself? Am I being biased right now on the questions that I'm asking? And questions does focus, which equals success, number one. Number two, raise your standards. We are a standard. That's what we do. I love the saying that says what you do some of the time you do all the time. I think that is so true. Third thing, realize that don't do entrepreneurship because it's hot and sexy. Don't, I don't even like to call myself an entrepreneur, but that's what people understand. Like I don't call it, like startups, it's not sexy. There's nothing cool and sexy about it. It's hard work, it's underpaid, it's overworked, it's over worried. But if you really love it, absolutely go and do it. Yeah. Maybe do it with some people first, maybe not, maybe go do it yourself. Realize then when forth, when you do and go and achieve your dream, uh, try to achieve your dreams and your goals, there's a reason why things have not been built. Yeah. There's a reason why people are not doing it. There's a reason why your second-in-command is going to go and tell you are wrong, but he's the second-in-command for a reason. You're running the show, listen to them, learn from them, be honest, don't be you know, arrogant about it, find the best answer in the group, but ultimately you have to make a choice and not everybody is going to agree with you.
0: also would like to add, don't stay in your green zone. And don't stay in your green zone, yes, and then have a kid. That's, <laughs> and have many. So, uh, wrapping up here, uh, where is maths in five years? Um, Do you have any ideas or goals you want to share to the audience where you see yourself going forward? You know, it's so fascinating. Like when I
1: sold the first business three years ago now, it was a completely underwhelming experience um, because it's always like that. I think with goals, the journey is everything. The goal is really nothing. The goal is a guiding principle of where you want to get to. When I sold the second, when I sold third, every single time, the next second, it was another thing. So for me,
0: if I get to do what I do today, the rest of my life, I'm very, very pleased. You know, hopefully working with you. <laughs> where can people find you, Matt? You, you make so much great content on basically every platform. <laughs> on every so. platform.
1: I'm very bad at Twitter. I'm trying to understand Twitter. But, like, look, LinkedIn is definitely very good. Uh, I've started a YouTube channel now where they're going to be able to see a lot more things. It's um, so probably YouTube is the best. And, you know, Go and hit subscribe
0: as, yeah, as a post i learning. Definitely so. people have to subscribe to that. And I also would like to add for people who would like maybe to work for young, one of your companies. You should say something about that as well. Because you are hiring quite a few people. Also younger people. Internships, trainees and whatever.
1: Yeah, so we I basically there are three programs that I spend most of my time on that we do. One is we hire people for a one-year internship right out of high school. Navy Sorry. SEALs, right? Navy SEALs <laughs> completely. It's I always say it's like working in Goldman Sachs. They work a lot of hours. Um, We give them a lot of love, but also a lot of tough love, Like Navy seals, you know, we got to get them, you know, used to choose to the the, the speed and everything else, but they get to join board meetings, they get to see real things, they get to work on important stuff. And then after that one year, um, some of them are selected and the people who are selected, they get to go and um, continue with us full time, but then they will fly in and out, they'll do a bachelor's on the side, but they'll fly for exams or take them locally. We pay for their flights. We pay for their materials. They'll get their exam. You know, they'll get the bachelor, but they work 70 hours a week with us just going in and out for exams. But then we guarantee those people to be the CEO before they finish with their bachelor's. So one year internship, if you're selected, three years bachelor while working here in the future CEO program, then you're guaranteed to be a CEO by the time you graduate if you're on track, which the two people we've hired so far are. That's amazing. Second platform that we have is Student Founders. So you can go to studentfounders.com. That's where we build companies together with students. We have had build companies together with about 150 students so far. I think this year alone, we're doing 120 in addition. Um, but basically, we build companies with people. We try to, and we've historically built so far, um, for-profit um, conferences with them because a conference is great because after nine months, you're done. And so if you if you don't want to continue, you can roll off. But everywhere, if you want to be the founder of a business together, us, so you don't have an idea, you're a student, Go to studentfounders.com and you can see everything that you have to do. And then the third thing is our management associate program, which is where people join after their bachelor's, after their master's, with a very clear idea that they spend 18 months in the management associate program um, in two to three different positions. Um, and then the idea is hopefully that they'll be the CEO or CXO of a business after that 18 months after their bachelor's. And so one guy right now manages a business. He's one and a half, two years out of his bachelor. He manages a business with... Um, about uh, $3 million in revenue, and about 15 people. And the other guy is year one, year out, he manages two business, about 15 people employed in those two
0: and you know, a couple yeah.
1: million in revenue. So,
0: um, It's amazing yeah. opportunities. And I just want to, I know what I'm talking about. I work for in, one of your companies and the learning curve is insane. And basically you're so grateful afterwards because even though you have some pain along the way, you look back and say, shit, I learned yeah. a ton right now.
1: That's what we hear from everyone is, it's actually very difficult, even for the internship program, where the people go to university, they feel like, and they're extremely accomplished, they feel like their learning curve is, is declining. So it's it's always the same thing. Who would you rather have as a coach, Pep Guardiola or somebody who's very relaxed? You want Pep. Pep is going to have high expectations. Pep is going to expect you to yeah. deliver. Pep is going to do all those things. It's yeah. going to be love. But it's going to be tough love as well, right? But you want him, not every day. Yeah. Like some days you just want love, some days you just want to cuddle. But yeah. really, if you want to go and go into battle, you want that guy. And that's what we are here. But we have that with a lot of love and really, really yeah. like each other, which is the most important. Work super hard, then celebrate the championship. That's fine. To celebrate every day. Yeah. Like life is just one big playground exactly. for the part of the world that we grew up in.
0: I love the analogy, Mats. And I would say in terms of startups, you're the pep cardiol of of that. So people should definitely at least get the information, see it out and maybe apply. So Mats, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been awesome chatting to you. Great to be here. Thank you. Hi everyone, Christopher here again. If you liked this episode, we would love if you took the time to rate, review, and subscribe to us. It helps us connect with more listeners that want to learn from the people we interview. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube by searching for Bun, or you can check out our homepage, by nordnorway.com for more content and exclusive news. We appreciate you listening and hope to see you in the future as well. Bye.